Welcome to Tether Together, a podcast about friendship, care, and connection from Laura Interlandy and Erica Livingston of Birdsong Brooklyn. We're so glad you're here. Welcome. Welcome back to Tether Together. Today is a really fun episode. Today we're going to talk about available joy. We are, as you know, if you're here, you know we love to flip the script and change narratives and we're word nerds and we love to put words together that can take take something from a concept to an embodied feeling and actually start to spark a change even within. And that is really what Available Joy is for us. It is our continued commitment to talking about mental health in a way that actually centers wellness, not illness, um, outside of a binary of either illness or wellness. And that kind of breaks down uh, the human experience um, to allow for joy to permeate our days, even if that period isn't the most joyful period of our lives. Yeah, I think available joy for me is a word combo that permissions me to talk about this with clients and friends and even myself in a way that also lets me off the carousel of guilt and shame spiral. And that's been like the way since like Laura started using this term in 2015, 2016. But then the more we've been in conversation about it and the more it's gotten pulled apart and put back together and the reasons and the whys and the what's, um, it's started to live as something yeah it's a term that does some permissioning and it's uh it's interesting because it's one of those things that we are making a whole podcast episode about what it is however (laughs) you know exactly what it is when we say it and that's what's so cool about it is that it's a word combo that when you hear it you're like yes i want that um and yet and so it invites you in to kind of go deeper into like what wow what is my available joy and when i'm working specifically with postpartum clients usually when we're in tough town and something really tough is happening you can just say the sentence like well can we find the available joy in this and then it is really understandable what is being asked you know um but then i think the how is a little bit it's a little bit nuanced and something that we are always working to describe better so um that's what this podcast is all about and we also wanted to talk about the origin story of it which really takes us back to a time when a young laura interlandy was pregnant with what she thought was a single fetus and yet (laughs) (laughs) and yet and yet that's such a good like if we're going around the dinner table and like you're saying (laughs) we're co-telling a story and yet is a really good clause Um, that's the segue (laughs) speaking of that my twins there's a really big pocket of available joy in my life right now with my twins wanting to tell stories um, and co-tell stories and tell stories like that in a round. So 
And we do that at bedtime. When I put them to bed, we sit in a circle, kind of like mostly in the dark. And we tell, we all take turns telling stories. Um, and their stories really are unending. And Willow particularly, she goes, and then, and I'll be like, okay, and this is going to be the last thing in this chapter. And then she's like, and then, <laughs> her sweet little voice. So I thought I was pregnant with a single, just a single little a singleton, baby. just a single little log baby, just floating around in all that space. And yet, in fact, it was what I lovingly refer to my twins during my pregnancy as the boomy cat. And that came out of a meditation that I went into to calm my nerves the day before I went for my ultrasound, because having had a home birth the first go around and experienced midwifery care and also being from Canada where you don't really start your prenatal care formally until 12 weeks. I didn't have any first trimester prenatal care for my twin pregnancy um, because I was sort of shopping around for another home birth midwife, assuming I would have the same kind of deal. And I also just felt like I had sort of, I was in my flow of what my tools were in that time. And I went to my general practitioner and I asked her for a referral to send me out for an ultrasound and blood work because it was important for me to have that at the end of the first trimester, even though I hadn't chosen my midwife yet. And she ended up sending me to her OBGYN, who she said had a pretty holistic lens for an OBGYN. And I just went and, you know, I trust her. I'll go to this referral. I can still go and seek out the primary care provider of my choice, but this person can provide me with the prenatal care I need at this moment covered by my insurance and so on and so on. And for some reason, the day before the ultrasound, I started to get a lot of fears about what might be coming and what I might be finding out at that appointment. And I went from feeling kind of like overconfident with my second time parent mentality of, oh, I know how this is going to go. Oh, I'm a doula. I have so much more info now. All of a sudden to getting quite nervous that something was wrong. Something was definitely different. Um, I had joked, I and I had joked with Lindsay Bliss about being pregnant with twins, like early, early, early on. Um, but as the day came closer and closer, I started to just feel, yeah, some some real fears. And I actually had had some strange test results previous that summer that had given me cause for concern with my health. And all of a sudden, I just felt that that sort of razor's edge of not really knowing um, what was happening inside my own body and being really humbled by the experience of being pregnant again. And so the day before I went to uh, lay down and um, lay laid in the sun, the sun patch in my older daughter's room and put on this guided meditation. Well, it was just a, a instrumental meditation and some very powerful imagery came up. And one of the images in the meditation that came up for me was actually these two jaguars, one that was pure black and one that was spotted. And uh, you know, the rest of that uh, meditation is my own private medicine, but I will say I didn't feel better. 
<laughs> afterwards. I felt actually more unsettled and careful what you careful how you meditate, but I really felt more unsettled than before. And so when I went to that appointment, I really went with a lot of fear is the truth. And I really just wanted to have that ultrasound and get confirmation that things were healthy. So that was my mindset going in. And then, and then I was laying there on the examining table bed, weird thing we make people lie on. And the ultrasound tech, you know, did some of that shamey business about why I hadn't had like 19 uh, vaginal ultrasounds prior to 12 weeks, <laughs> wondering why I just didn't want to like daily ultrasound. Um, and I, she asked me the question, so are you, this is your first ultrasound in that kind of troubling way, which again, didn't calm my nerves and went immediately back to the interface of the computer, which was projected up onto the screen in front of us and changed the number of fetuses from one to two saying nothing else. Uh, not giving any space, neither hiding that information from us, nor revealing it, or any kind of spaceful thing whatsoever. And I just screamed, there's two in there. And Sal turned and looked at me and we started, I started laugh, cry, screaming. And all of the feelings at all of the same time. I think the first like concrete thing that came out of my mouth, which this is for another episode for another day on twin life and how twin parents think very differently from go than singleton parents do. The first thing out of my mouth that was like a concrete thought was we are going to need a new car. <laughs> like, I immediately went to the practical of how our lives were going to be different and cut to later that day we are on the Staten Island ferry going back to pick up our older daughter. And I had actually received, I had gone straight from that OBGYN appointment downtown to an appointment with a hematologist and confirmed that I also was healthy for these other reasons that I was worried I was not healthy. So it was a big day with a lot of news that had a lot of high stakes. And I was standing on the Staten Island ferry and I was looking kind of up at the sky and I, my arms were outstretched and it was windy and cold. And I just felt so incredibly alive and awake with that razor's edge of life of how your life can change at any moment and how um, insignificant my powers to control my own experience truly were. And I really humbled in that moment to what I, what I was being called up, what, what I was being called up for. And knowing that surrender actually wasn't even going to be enough. It's one thing to just say you surrender, but I knew that at the end of my life, I would look back on my experiences as a parent of three children, three and under, and at my early parenting of twins. And I would glorify in retrospect, my babies and the time I had babies. And yet here I was in the moment before having those babies terrified of what it was going to mean and what I was going to have to do and give up and shuffle and organize and change about my expectations. And yet 
as an older woman, as an elderly woman, I would always look back on those moments through rose colored glasses and romanticize them. So what a crime against myself if I wasn't going to be able to and willing to absorb what came up as the available joy of that experience. Not as a toxic positivity of like enjoying every moment, but just as really making sure that I was going to be able to receive the truth of the magnitude of the blessing that was these, these babies. And for their sake and for mine, it was just going to be so important to tether to that, tether to knowing that there was going to be joy available, even in a time that was for sure going to bring tumultuous um, times and challenges to our relationship and our life and our everything. Um, There would be available joy and it was up to me to find it and figure out how to receive it even with twins. That's a hell of a story. It is a hell of a story. (laughs) I like literally could feel my womb contracting (laughs) as I was telling that story. And like, yeah, it's a hell of a story. Still I want to swipe in on the moment uh, about the enjoy every moment because we really wanted to kind of pick that out. So I think it's really normal for us to all have like an inner ticker tape that says this thing. And that's because a lot of our elders um, say this to us at some point, um, or maybe even not elders, but people... Um, in our rings of support say, you know, the main thing I want to impart to you is that you just enjoy this time period and make sure you treasure your babies and make sure that you realize just how great every single moment of (laughs) this experience is. And though uh, we can all see as we swipe out and stand um, outside of that ring and look inward why someone might say that it is so impossible and I think like most people do not enjoy hearing that and it is because that starts to put us back on the carousel of shame and guilt about why we should how we should be just really delighting in every single moment of every bit of the day in early parenthood when actually it is a very hard time to slog through and you're, you know, up to your waist in um, milk and poop and screaming and that's, and tears. And that's coming like out of everybody, all, all the needs. And so I think that available joy is this permission to enjoy not every moment, but what is available to you in the time, because trying to enjoy every moment is impossible. That's just not going to happen. We're not going to be able to achieve that. And that's okay. But the available joy starts to go like, let's look for what is here instead of some kind of cliched hallmark card way of looking at early parenthood that is unrealistic and also totally founded in commercialism as well. It's just like enjoy every moment like they do on the Pampers commercial or something. And that available joy is more what is happening in the now that's actually unique and personable to you and your experience, not what like the outside world says should be the moment you enjoy, but the moment for you and your child or children and what's happening within that that you can find and kind of cultivate, dig out, 
and then receive like it's about you receiving it and it not being like let me show everyone that i'm a great parent because i'm able to uh, enjoy my available joy but that i am actually having a nice moment and that i don't even have to show it to everybody because it's it's my available joy just like when laura told that story and she hit the part about the jaguars and was like here's what happened in there and you know what the rest of that is my medicine and that's my available joy that i don't have to always even give to everybody we don't have to share every single moment with every person all the time and that is amazing to come out of my mouth because i am definitely a leader of Overgivers anonymous and i am definitely an over talker and an over sharer and yet i do believe that when especially when we're talking about this topic that some of it is just yours and you don't have to commodify it and you don't have to put it into a box that makes it appealing for everybody else to commodify it and that sometimes what's really delicious is to have a little moment of available joy that's just yours in secret your kids don't even know it's you with the dark chocolate peanut butter cups hidden in the bathroom just having one when no one knows you don't have to tell anybody it's just you having that one little thing and that's just one of my little things but you have your own dark chocolate peanut butter cups in your bathroom you know in the mad libs of the story of you i had this realization the other day that no one is ever going to know my kids the way that i know them true and that ooh might cry a little bit about that um that like they will only reveal their version of themselves as they share it with me with me and they'll yeah, never I think be I'm a picture cry about that too yeah they'll never be a picture <laughs> that encapsulates that they'll never be a story that encapsulates that it's like what happens in and i think actually the other night this is true the other night while we were having our little like story time sitting in the bedroom um, I was actually thinking that you would really like to be there with me and Willow and Luca having like our nighttime, like imagine there's like a little tiny campfire on the floor, like story time sharing circle. But I had that thought of maybe Erica could come and sit with us and have this time with us. And then I realized that while you could, you being there. And I will. You could and you will, <laughs> but you being there would change it and it would be yeah. different and that would be amazing and there'd be available joy there. But the moment but I different. was experiencing with them right then in the way they were being with me right then would definitely be different with another person there as well. It would definitely be different if I was trying to film it and make stories for Instagram. Like it would definitely yeah, just- Yeah, that moment that, is just y'all's. It's, it's just, just y'all's. And I think sometimes when, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about simple joys and, and the medicine of the grandmother crone archetype as it pertains to available joy. But I think sometimes when people, I see now a few years postpartum that when people say enjoy every moment or some version of that, I can feel their pain as an empath with the mm. fact that they were unsupported and they're saying that because there's a part of them I think we'll always miss when our babies are babies and we'll always want to go back and like rub their ooh, gonna cry again rub their little sweet feet at bedtime but we also I think 
when we haven't been supported and when we, when those years feel like they flew by without a lot of embodied receiving of the joy that was available, that can be really painful to then see somebody else in that time period that you're just dying to get back to and really fold yourself all up in. Yes. The like reason the people say enjoy every moment is the same reason that a lot of rings of support come in and only want to hold the baby right? It's like, that's always such a hard part for us as doulas to try to get the rings of support to activate, to do everything. Cause not everybody wants to come over and like clean the bathroom or take out the bathroom trash of trash of a postpartum person. And also like wash the dishes. Everyone wants to come over and hold the baby because it's that same, it's the same heartstring we're talking about, right? Is that that's the, it, we're just trying to get back into the sweetness of that moment. And it's this interesting thing because we, I think want to be there not being the postpartum person. Like we all want yeah. to have that time and not be bleeding, healing, needing and up all night, all the support. Right. Like, yeah. And like not having sleep and all that. We're like dying to be our youthful self or even our like adjusted older self and, but still like have a brand new baby. Yeah. And that's it's an so interesting true. desire. That's it's a really interesting we, desire because it's just not the way it works. It's not how our nature works, right? It's our very rarely. I mean, I guess there's still occasionally moments that that can work in different forms of family. But, you know, even as someone who loves to support, support adopted families where the person is not necessarily bleeding, are they sleepless? Yes. Are they crying? Yes. They look just the same. You know, there's just less pads by the toilet. But other than that, like adopted families look so similar. And so, there's a very rare experience, and I, I don't know, in some ways this leads, a, it's good to lead into our thoughts on the simple joys, because I think in some ways, right, what we're desiring in between the childbearing years and, like, the elderly years, we're, like, kind of desiring once we've passed the hard part of the childbearing years, we're, like, des desiring to be grand grandmothers, grandparents, you know, which is I have already been through this and I can also hand the baby back at night <laughs> and I can just take the, um, it's so skexy like, it's like, <laughs> I will take the vital essence of this child from their soft little bottoms of their feet and their big old cheeks. Um, not that grandmothers are skexies. I just want to like make that clear that I'm not saying grandmothers are skexies, but that there is some part <laughs> of um, all of us at any stage past when our kids are little that like wants, yeah, to absorb that like sweetness. And there is a life force to, there is, there's just like a well, beautiful life force. I got to say that I think this is because we live in a society that commodifies rather than connects and experiences. So yeah, totally. like when we talk even about the too muchness, it's like, okay, well you want the, too, the part of me that's too much that could like uh, go in and pitch something and get you money, you want that, but you don't want the too muchness of me when I am crying and need support, right? It's like, you want to come and hold my baby and receive the joy that's available from holding a brand new baby, but you don't necessarily want to do my dishes and like make sure I feel grounded and take supported. out my blood trash don't want to take out my blood trash it's like <laughs> right <laughs> the exchange for seriously that's the that's the small... deep truth <laughs> and it's also though i think as parents it's really easy to 
And I think before we become parents, we, we don't think so much about the taking out of the blood trash. We think much more about the like giggly moments, pushing a swing at the park. And that's Mm. part of what we're grounding into that can feel like a cook of expectations when all of a sudden we realize that in order for us to be able to receive the available joy of what it feels like to be a primary caregiver um, or secondary caregiver is that we also have to go through all these all these other parts right it's like we get those little giggles and those first smiles because we're doing so much freaking holding and yeah. holding sometimes makes us want to jump out of our own skin because all we want to do is just like have t- two arms that can move independently while not holding something not, that's eight pounds, you know? Um, but yeah. without all of that holding and all of that sitting and all of that being, we wouldn't actually be in the nervous system state and the emotional state to receive the true joy that happens that first time that person smiles or the when you make Mm. them laugh hour four it wouldn't feel the same and i want to contextualize that and really hold up the people that are in this time period and not again it's escaping the shame carousel and which is uh, founded in toxic positivity that says in order for you to feel to be grateful you have to enjoy every moment you're grateful for your yeah and even to be deserving bored. yeah right you're yeah. allowed to be bored for four hours and st- you're, totally. you're showing up and it's a little bit boring sometimes but then these big waves come and when those waves come if we can relax and release and receive what is revealing itself in that moment, it will literally buoy us for another four hours or even four weeks or four months. You know, those moments mm-hmm. when they're fully embodied in receiving will do so much for us. It's true. We frequently say at our postpartum doula trainings that postpartum doulas show up when the going gets boring. <laughs> so true. And that's what we need. We need people around us that will. Okay, we want to talk about simple joys from our grandmother. So you're thinking about um, in trying to explain available joy and what it means to us as Laura and Erica and also just as Birdsong and as our business because it's something we really use in the way we serve people and the way we speak and communicate. And that an easy way for us to do that would be just to share simple joys that we saw our grandmothers doing. I'll start with one. Um, My grandmother, like I guess probably a lot of grandmothers um, are, uh, was very um, still and calm for, you know, most of the years that I have like memory of her. And she took her time with things and moved slowly with like a lot of grace, um, but moved slowly. And I remember she is who taught me what I know, my first knowings of herbs and herbalism and gardening and like having my hands dirty and being in the dirt. And she always did that with this real slow way. And that might have been partly because we were in the South and it's just hot. (laughs) And I think that sometimes people in the South move slower and talk slower just because of the the history of heat. But it also is something that I think of as a moment of available joy for me is thinking back to her slowly moving through and harvesting the garden 
and how it's easy for me to get into the context of our world thinking that joy has to be like sped up or fast or that joy is like bursting and surprising and things like that. And yet I definitely experienced joy around my grandmother that was actually very like easy and slow. When I think of my grandparents, I feel like they laid the tracks for me to, I really do feel like they laid the tracks for me to be able to embody this lesson later on in my life. I think sometimes seeds get planted and they, they're not supposed to bloom right away or blossom right away. Um, And so for me, when I think of available joy, I just think of my grandmother who had a very hard life, um, who had every right in the world to be angry, bitter, resentful. um, And yet, she was always finding the available joy in her experience. Always, 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 always. And I watched her do that. And she certainly didn't have words for it. Um, She didn't have a term for it or a certain (laughs) practice, you know, that was intentional and, or in any way dogmatic. She just, it was like, I guess like a gratitude practice and in, I think in a way available joy is an embodied in real time gratitude practice because you are, instead of at the end of the day, just like making a big list, you are in the moment clocking. Wow. This water is really refreshing. <laughs> you know, you are like, wow, this baby foot is so soft, even though the screams are piercing my eardrums. You know, there is something about a felt sense that brings us back to the now and brings us back into our bodies. So I think I would encourage people as well to think of available joy as an invitation into your senses. And if you're having a really hard time, seeing where the available joy is in your life in this moment. Um, First of all, that's probably a sign of depletion and a need for support. And second of all, a way, a place to look that can be helpful is with the senses. So dropping some oils in the base of your shower and just letting it fill your shower and receiving that. Um, Tasting something like a chocolate peanut butter cup (laughs) that is going to, uh, really allow for you to get into joy, you know, in the moment, because you know, you like that thing. One thing that's just coming up for me is this idea to definitely the first teacher of this was my grandmother is the like available joys in the rhythm of the wheel of the year. And like when we were, when you were first saying this prompt to me and you were like, are you going to be able to say some available joy about your grandmother? And I was like, yes, that's going to be a really easy task. Um, Partly because I was in like a grandma band for seven years that was all about honoring grandmothers in a funny way. Um, But also it's not hard for me to connect those words to um, my grandmother. And some of the stuff that was coming up in my mind was like, okay, available joy for my grandmother is pickling and available joy for my grandmother is the seed starting and a great available joy for my grandmother is like decorating and wrapping for holidays. And there, she was like the first person to introduce me to the ideas of like ritual and of, um, 
tradition and also of like moving with the seasons and that there is this available joy around us in nature it's easy to just kind of like step away from it but that frequently if we step in it actually gives us so much I read this thing the other day that was talking about just like making sure you acknowledge the change in the seasons to your young children because like for me I've been through fall about to be 41 times, right? But they still have only been there three times or six times. And so it really does a lot for just young children to hear you say, wow, the weather's getting colder. It's chillier in the morning and we snuggle in the bed longer. Or isn't it amazing to watch the um, leaves turn these different colors? Like, what does that mean and what do you see? Like, isn't it interesting that the sun goes down a little bit earlier and that bedtime, there's like a lot darker time for us, you know, and it can be easy, I think, for us to just step away from that and not say it, but that permissioning it is for our kids is also permissioning it for us. And those are basic available joys, right? Like those are the simple joys of just connecting. Yeah. To our grandma rhythm. Well, my oldest child, she goes to an outdoor nature type school. And last week they posted something on the parent Facebook group that was about all weather learning because rain or shine, they're outside. This morning we dropped her off and they were outside. It was pouring with rain, Pacific Northwest style, and they were doing their circle outside as per usual. I mean, they might go do reading inside so they don't ruin the books, but like everything else that they normally do outside, they find a way to do outside and they find a way to do it outside joyfully. And the, there was this meme that was posted about the life lessons of all weather outdoor learning. And it was uh, not only does all weather outdoor learning help with resiliency, physical resiliency and problem solving, which are kind of some obvious takeaways, but it also helps children to realize that and and to learn from go that life is not something that should be enjoyed on one day or another or dependent on the external all the time but that life is something that's going to be different every day and it's up to us to figure out how to enjoy it when it's different and especially when it's different than we think we want it to be and I think that's so profound because it's, it's like anti-capitalist. That's anti-capitalist to me. That's working outside of a consumerist model that says like summer is the only enjoyable season, right? Or in order to enjoy summer, you have to like have like a particular type of body and a particular type of way of experiencing it and take particular types of vacations and have particular types of gatherings. It's like, no, like what is your experience? Your experience is your experience to unfold and to receive and to unfold and to receive. And when I think of, you know, my grandmother being eight years old, like she tells a story of the day she emerged from a bomb shelter to see her house flattened and how her and her brother and sister like made a game on the train going to their new home. And I'm like, whoa, whoa. And so that like cheesy quote of learning how to dance in the rain, I mean, like it is kind of that. And there's so much that's outside of our control. 
And it doesn't mean we shouldn't plan and we shouldn't ask for support. And there are things that we can do to set ourselves up for success or to receive support that will make it more easily available for us to slip into the joy that is coming up. But it's a reframing of not waiting. It's like not waiting to be saved in a way, right? Not waiting for the perfect conditions in which to decide that our life is worth living, that our life is worth receiving, that we are worthy of our own joy. And that's what I say to clients a lot, especially when they're getting to a point where they're maybe going to admit that they are suffering rather than just struggling in the range of normal. They're starting to get to that point where they're willing to admit that they don't want to feel the way that they're feeling. And it's like they're they're coming to the point, I say, wow, what a brave and incredible and transformational moment this is. Even though you, what you're feeling is I need to reach out for more support or I'm embarrassed or I'm ashamed that I need to reach out for more support. My mental health is now moving outside of the range of what I'm comfortable with. I'm like, what you're recognizing in the deepest ebb moment is that you are worthy of your own joy, that you deserve to have a nicer time you're not doing a bad job and you're at receiving available joy. You're recognizing that you want to receive it and that you're just deserving of receiving it. And for whatever is going on internally, externally, ancestrally, presently, you are being blocked from being able to receive that. So that's the other thing I want to say is that, yes, this is a practice, right? It's a, it's a neurological practice where we're like rewiring our brains and it's like a heart opening practice. And it is an anti uh, kind of establishment practice where we go right now, what I have, I can find joy in. I don't need to buy something. I don't need to look a certain way. I don't need to compare. I don't even need to scroll. I can just be here now and, and never tell anyone what the most magical part of my day was because it's here now because I'm here now. And where I am is magical because I am me and this is my experience. And that's enough. The other side to that is that if you are not able to do that, again and again, if you are trying to do that, if you are looking at your life and you're going, wow, I know that there's another layer here that I could be accessing that I can't, there isn't necessarily anything wrong with you. You're not doing it wrong. You're not doing it badly. You probably just need some more support. So if listening to this right now is really activating you or you're sitting here, you're even crying with tears falling down your face going, I don't know the last time I felt like I could receive available joy or I could unfold into the moment then that might be a sign that you need an extra ring of support in, able, in, in order to get to a place where you can do that. And that is, is self-love embodied, right? That is courage embodied. And whether that's you need more sleep <laughs> or whether that's you need some nourishing foods because you're really depleted or whether you need actually the space with somebody who is trained to understand the full picture of mental health and help you chart a course back to healing. Um, you can do both, right? You can be working on really, really hard mental health pieces and also doing the self work of leaning into the moments and trying to figure out how and what and where you can receive more. I believe that if we approach mental health a different way, one thing that we talk about a lot is like um, taking mental health off the binary and trying to look less at it of just, I'm okay, not okay, but that there's a gradient. I like to describe it ombre, because that's a nice visual. 
um, but that there is many, there's many different looks within and um, wherever you are right now, most likely, even if you are accessing available joy a lot, you probably could use more support because couldn't we all use a little more support? I mean, just in general, it'd be nice for every person to call in one more ring. Yeah, if we all did that. What we also wanted to do today was talk about the foundation of our business is in our friendship, but it's also in our history as performers and writers and comedians. And we both studied comedy um, a great deal before we were parents and doulas. And we still work a lot of our learnings and tenets from comedy into our work. And it's definitely a piece of available joy for us. So we thought we'd share with you as kind of the last part of this um, podcasty offering today is some of the principles and tenets and structures of comedy and how we use them in our lives as doulas and parents. And that might seem really far-fetched, so it's totally fine if you're listening to this while doing the dishes and you're like, what are they actually, what are they doing, you know? Um, and that is okay <laughs> to feel that way because it is different, right? We are asking you to maybe go out of your comfort zone. I, like, I hosted a support group in Brooklyn that we called Available Joy that Laura and I structured together. It was already after she had moved, unfortunately, so we didn't get to host it live together. But one of the interesting things I found in trying to get people to come to a support group called Available Joy that was going to dig into the tenets of comedy is that sometimes people are afraid to step in that direction, almost like the feeling of stage fright, like the feeling of like fear towards stepping. Like, are you going to make me feel uncomfortable by talking about these things, you know, and that I was going to do something to people other than make them find a way to laugh a little more frequently? Um, and so if that's coming up in you right now, um, that's okay. Like, because also, yeah, comedy isn't frivolous. It's essential. <laughs> Laura is typing to me because we're trying really hard to make this sound clean and good for you and take turns talking. <laughs> but, and also like comedians are healers. That is so true. You know, doulas are healers and comedians are healers and we just see this woven intersection of the two is that there is you know as cheesy as it sounds like laughter is the best medicine even though like i know it sounds so corny for me to say it right now like lean into your corny so okay again if you're feeling a little like resistant to this conversation um lean in with us on your resistance right now and permission us to just kind of walk you through this and you don't have to take any of it you can totally pass us by but just give us the the listen yeah so i just want to like ground us in for the scientists okay i'm coming in hot for the scientists okay this is science guys this is science so what i mean by that is probably if you're here you've heard the term oxytocin Okay. It's different than like, I'm not talking about like drugs. Okay. <laughs> I'm talking about the biochemicals that your body produces that are, it's a hormone your body produces when you are pregnant and when you're birthing, it's the Pitocin is the synthetic version of oxytocin. Um, you need 
oxytocin and in some cases pitocin in order to contract regularly enough to produce cervical change and birth a baby. On the other side of birthing a baby, um, there are giant waves of oxytocin that are available to you, which also trigger lactation to occur. And when you are lactating and you're trying to feed a baby from your body, you actually need the, ke the chemical oxytocin in order for your milk to let down so that the baby can have the food. And oxytocin is the love drug, the love hormone. Like it's the juicy, juicy connective attachment. Like you can go and read as much as you want about it. But so when we talk about laughter being medicine and we talk about it being essential on the journey, like if you're going to feed your baby, you have to get that hormone going and moving and, you, and flowing freely. So literally making a client laugh and having a genuine moment of release might be way more effective in them having a really good feed than the exact position of the baby and making sure we got football hold down. So I mean, I mean this very, very, very literally. And I think it's also important to acknowledge something that I was never, I read this like after the twins, I, I didn't even learn this when I became a doula. I didn't certainly didn't, no one told me this when I had a child. Certainly no one told me this when I had twins and was like already hip to the wise that I might have like a mental health blip over this great threshold. Nobody bothered to mention to me that when you are pregnant, if you have a placenta or more than one placenta, if you're having twins or multiples, um, your placenta is producing progesterone, which is a feel good hormone. It's another like boosty up good vibe feeling hormone. When you birth your baby or babies and you birth your placenta or placentas, you don't have that progesterone producing organ in your body anymore. And your progesterone goes down lower than it even is in menopause. So <laughs> when you have the context for that knowledge, it's like mind blown, right? Because all of a sudden we stop gaslighting ourselves and saying, well, why do I feel so weepy? And like, is this the baby blue? Should I be worried about post postnatal depression, postpartum depression? Like, if we just had the context for knowing that actually like our chemistry of our body was going to switch from like chemistry that's supposed to make us feel good to chemistry that is without everything that was making us feel good and at tiredness and, and, and right. All of a sudden we might go, wow, let me just like wait, how wait and see how I feel and, and make sure that I have some extra rings of support available. So I just like, I do genuinely want to ground into the fact that, feeling good is supposed to be a part of the feeling good and traversing feeling good and not feeling good or having things that help us feel good. And then actually not for not having those things anymore is a built in biological part of crossing the threshold into parenthood. And so as we move into talking about comedy and how comedy can be applied to um, the threshold or even just your life in general, um, I want to just remind that laughter is part of that oxytocin cycle. And so if you need something to tether into that's like empirical evidence-based, there you go. Welcome. <laughs> Super good. I mean, also, I think that we should work on how to make that more funny. Because <laughs> if we could make that description more funny, 
then we'd really be onto something. Okay. So then what I'm seeing here, what I'm hearing (laughs) is, what I'm hearing is we need, um, like kind of foam suits as if we are mascots at like, uh, some sort of sporting event. And one of us is oxytocin and one of us is progesterone. And there's some sort of like interpretive dance. And it's like a sort of Gumby and pokey situation, but like we're embodied hormones. That's, that's my vision. Yes. No bad ideas. Right. There are no bad ideas. I also, the way I was thinking of it was more like a felt board that was like telling kind of like a two-dimensional puppet story with felt, but that's just because that's my main medium that I work in Well, maybe is we felt. Should, maybe yes, and. I think there's a lot. So of- it's felt suits. Felt suit. with a felt board. Yeah. I mean, it's also one of the reasons. You're oxytocin and I'm progesterone. I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm flexi. <laughs> I go, okay, I go both ways. And I also will say that something that is literally in my doula bag is a fluffy, full-sized adult unicorn onesie. That is something I carry in my doula bag because you just never know when you're going to need to bring that into the space. Yeah. And that's how you get mad respect at those couch and valley hospitals. Yeah. <laughs> your unicorn suit. I'll tell you what, if you want people to respect the doula in the room, put her in a costume. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so cute. Okay, so we're going to quickly move through a few of these and maybe even like in season two of Tether Together, we'll go deeper on um, some of these tenets of comedy and how, yeah, and if this resonates with you, like write us an email back. Like, let's talk about this because I think not just like, we're going to introduce it now, but getting deeper into how we can use these things is truly how we start to make change instead of just kind of like sitting around the campfire talking about this again. Like how can we, yeah. So we've introduced this concept of available joy and now we want to talk about how we can access it more. So one of the things that we use in our doula work and our parenting and our definitely our relationship with each other is yes. And which is a tenant of comedy that is basically that if you eliminate the nose and even like no budding is what we kind of jokingly call it, then um, you're going to be able to build more material. So by just saying yes and and then adding something to anything, you're always taking the material that's given and building upon it, which is always making more foundationally. And then in comedy, the, the reason we do this is so that we can move things along and that acceptance especially acceptance of kind of wild things really helps you flex your muscles of what you can even take in and it also allows it to be that you put the shine on the person across from you and Laura and I really believe in that in our business and that's even affected our business model of like all boats rise and the sun shines for everybody is that if you're shining light on your partner and you're like making them look really good, well then hopefully they're doing that for you too. And then everybody's rising up and everybody's being made um, to a seat to sit in the golden light. Right. And that if we're kind of selfishly in this place of no budding and making it about ourselves, kind of no one gets anywhere and then the scene dies in the water or the moment dies in the water. And this is applied not just in our business, not with each other, but even in the way we parent and also the way we doula. I mean, truly you need people, doulas are definitely people that need to be using yes and, because you don't want to walk into a space with someone in these tricky time periods of parenthood and then immediately negate them 
because in some ways the stuff we've been talking about re old episode nourish postpartum is that our over culture is not permissioning us to like be really truly who we are and then actually grow into a more like nourished space our over culture is keeping us in these kind of like trapped boxes and then if someone comes in and also starts like negating and no butting you then we don't ever get to the point where we can say yeah the way you're feeling is valid and here are some tools I can give you to support you. So yes, anding not only forwards a scene in comedy, but and yes, anding creates spaces. That's also yeah. what, I mean, what people don't realize is that toxic positivity, right? The manifestation culture that's, that is so rampant that many people who are going through difficult times don't feel seen by is because in a way that toxic positivity is no budding. It's saying it's, it's negating the current reality. It's not building upon it. It's not saying, yes, we have this much money in the bank and or not in the bank. And we want to move to a place of abundance. It's like in saying I am abundant in a moment that you are not feeling abundant or you've gotten a late rent notice or something, you feel no budded feel like your truth of what's hard for you in that moment is being shut down instead of somebody saying, yes, this is the moment as it currently exists and let's move beyond it to a place where you feel secure. And yeah. Yeah. So I want to, I just want to say that. That's also why this is such, this is such an important part of mental health, right? Because if we can acknowledge and create a container of the acknowledgement of where you are in this moment, where no one has to negate where you are, where you've been, or where you even think you're going with your mental health, just acknowledgement, just a yes. Yeah, I'm just here with you. I'm not even trying to fix this. I'm not trying to do anything different. It's just that yes, we just kind of need that yes. And then when it feels appropriate, then we bring in the and. Studies have actually shown that um, affirmation practices, while they can be really positive for many people, um, and definitely I've used them, and there are times when they feel good for me to use, um, but if you're in a really tough mental health space or a clinically diagnosed challenging mental health healing moment, um, they can actually do more harm. And I think that's because it feels in the moment like a no but, right? It feels like a denial of the truth of where you're actually feeling. So super important on all the levels. Could you give an example? Could we do a yes and? Like you do a scene, like you say something, you, Erica enters the space and she's blah, 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 and says this. And what does what would no but look like and what would yes and look like? So if I walk in, if I walk on stage, like as an improv. Oh, like a scene. Yeah. If I walk in and I'm wearing a hat and I say, um, I found your hat, your magic show is about to begin. Right. So if I were to say, no, I'm not a magician, literally nothing has happened except for negating embarrassing the partner, make that hat not have a space. And then, um, but if I were to answer with a yes and, so yes, and I am missing my clothing. Like I have my hat now, but I don't have any clothes to get to my magic show. And those are the most important part for when they saw me in half. Now we have like a scene and we have content and there's content from both players. 
and both people are there and and we start to actually get into something that's funny you know i think that we think sometimes that comedy and funny is only about the negative but it actually isn't always you know that's definitely one area of comedy you can go into but um it doesn't have to all be about being a hater and poop right there's a different level of comedy that can come from um just some acceptance um so i wanted to move us into the next one which is to find your clown so um i'm going to be really basic about this because i don't want us to take forever on each of them because i really want us to go deeper later and we're in we're introducing so many new ideas right now especially for people who did not um deep down and dirty study comedy for a while um but finding your clown is just a simple practice of basically becoming silly like that's the best way i can explain it right now on a very like beginner level and that i introduce it now as finding your clown but i think that it can be very valuable to find your parenting clown so what kind of parent are you um and what is almost like a bit of what is innately funny about you and then blowing it up a bit. So Laura has this example she's sharing with me right now to share, which when we were both in our own postpartum periods the first time, we went to this like parenting meetup um, in the park and we were like really excited to connect with other um, postpartum parents that were bringing their babies to the park. And so Laura, I can't, she was wearing like these very wavy, um, I think like heavily embroidered, I believe they were maroon, almost like harem pants along with like a multicolored woven wrap that she had put aria in and then like kind of a bag that you would carry to like um maybe kind of like a festival or something <laughs> as the diaper bag <laughs> and then we showed up in the park and every person at that parenting meetup besides laura and i was wearing like sleek black clothing and they all had brought their kids there in the like sleek black stroller of the moment. It was like the most, the most fancy stroller. And they were all sitting on the grass and it seemed like everyone had a blowout and full makeup. And we really looked, I mean, talk about clown. We really looked like clowns. We did because we were both just kind of like in a disheveled, trying to get it together, throw whatever outfits on. And also we both have, a tendency to wear a lot of color. <laughs> we're colorful types. And so we wound up taking a picture of that moment, like of Laura standing, you know, maybe 10 or 15 feet away from that sea of those parents. And it was just this clown moment of like, one of these things is not like the other. Now, did that mean that we didn't just go up into that circle and have a great time? No, we totally did. We went in that circle and we had a great time and like laughed and were silly with all of them. But sometimes it's nice to find your inner clown. And I think that finding your parenting clown can help you when you feel like an outcast, actually just feel funny and be able to look at what's going on that makes you feel that like tough little, like I don't fit in in this moment. It's like no clown fits in. That's what's funny. Clowns never fit in. You don't see clowns doing like click work about like sitting at the popular table, right? Clowns are always the outcast, you know, and they always are the ones sitting on the outside. And that's why they have a unique perspective. And that's also why we like 
that's why we can go on the journey with them because they speak to that part in each of us that we all have. That's like, I'm not really fitting in right now. And it's so doofy. And I just like fell in front of everybody. <laughs> and that is your clown. Right. And so thinking about what your parenting styles are like, and then almost like hyper swiping in on them is the way to start to do that. And then have the um, ability to step out of yourself for a second and see your most extreme moments as a parent and think that they're funny and share them with others like that is the best way to begin your clown work. This can also be really helpful for people that are in a relationship while parenting. Um, some people are with people that they're very, very similar, but many of us we get together with people that are really different than us. And even sometimes in like a hyperbolic way. And when my husband, who is a uh, Sicilian, New York, born and raised in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, um, who has, he has literally 28 cousins and I have two. Uh, and I grew up in the forest um, of Vancouver Island. There are moments like the telling of that as if they are log lines in a TV show and some of our arguments or fights or misunderstandings, sometimes when I think of like, wow, if this was like a 23 minute um, Wednesday night family comedy, like that's, that would be a good pitch. Like this is funny. And it, it helps me to swipe out rather than, and see the uh, connective, that connective juiciness that actually creates for a really good story. And that's why we're, why we're together and why we keep showing up. Um, because our clowns have something with their, like their costumes are so different and yet they're both clowns and they found each other in this sea. Um, and so I think it's important to sort of, it's like the idea of generous assumptions, like let's make a sweet, cute character out of what this is. Um, even if you don't totally get what we're saying with clown, make yourself the protagonist, you know, really help yourself and make the people in your life that are a part of your life, make them protagonists too. Because uh, everyone, the point is, everyone is a clown. <laughs> Everybody's silly. That's our big takeaway. Um, okay, I'm gonna kind of loop the next two in, which is surprise, the element of surprise. And that usually comes with context. You have to have context in order for a surprise to happen within comedy. And then also finding the game. And I'm going to kind of talk a little about them um, together and separate. So um, surprise, in a way, actually can break down to like fight or flight um, in comedy is that you're setting up a scenario. And then what you're going to do is go a different direction. So you're leading people in. This is when you're like crafting comedy words or you're you're creating an improv show or whatever you're doing that you think is funny and hopefully other people think is funny you're basically trying to lead the audience into uh want you're making them think they're coming down one path one direction and then you switch it up with a surprise and what physically happens in the body right then is shock and laughter is one form of shock leaving the body and personally it's my favorite way for shock to leave the body um, and the way we do that is kind of surprising people. So I'm not suggesting that you need to like jump up behind people and scare them because that's a different form of fight or flight that is definitely not trauma informed. I am suggesting though that in moments where you are having a tough time finding your available joy, surprising yourself or your kids in a fun way with taking a different route than what's expected 
is the way to bring in and access more joy. So a like cliche version of this would be that you take a different route home and you find some new things to look at with your children. Like any kind of moment where you choose literally or emotionally, like metaphorically, to take a different route than what's expected. And that that element of surprise can sometimes then help you to find the joy that wouldn't otherwise be optional or available. And then this links, I think, very well to the idea in comedy of finding a game is that um, when you're building scenes and structures together, you're always looking for like, what is the game? Basically, you're looking at if we take that kind of scene we were just um, joking about of like, Laura's bringing in this hat for my magic show and I'm like a nude magician trying to figure out what to do. In that scenario, if we played that scene out for a while, we would be looking for the rules like and what are the patterns. And once you start finding patterns and rules, then you can kind of play the game. And then in the end, the way you like really trick the game in a good way is do you also add in some surprise? Because once you find the game, you start playing it and your audience starts to follow your rules with you, then you can change them up once people understand them and do something surprising that then again brings in some shock because that's not the way we were gonna go and usually winds up landing as something funny. So in our life as parents, even as pregnant people, even for us as doulas, like finding the game in the moment, like is one way to bring the humor forward, to see the patterns that you're doing, even when the patterns are like not the greatest, right? Like you're doing something that's like not supportive as far as what you need right then. You're not supporting yourself well, or like, you know, you're doing something with your kids that is not really in alignment with what you want. Finding that game and playing that game and then switching the pattern can be one of the ways to like kind of find some funny and some available joy within that moment. You want to add anything to that, Laura? Well, I want to say that I feel like this is, you know, there are these light moments where this happens and then there are these heavy moments where this happens and everything in between. So um, we all get into funks and we all get into stagnancy and just even the very simplest thing of let me do one thing that's different today you know, like a different kind of breakfast, you know, a silly message in a lunchbox, like, or um, we're going to listen to different music um, at bedtime or whatever it is. Like even just the very simplest, if all this sounds a bit overwhelming, just like the simplest little switching it up, I think can be really healthy. And then also recognizing that like, one of the elements of surprise that I think comes up for all of us and I think can be really helpful to fold into parenthood and to just look for like some of what we're talking about really is the foundations of mindfulness and presentness. Cause I can't yes and you if I'm not present with what it is you're giving me in the first place. And I can't find the game and find the rules if I'm not mindfully like in the moment. And so comedy and mindfulness have um, a really incredible dovetail, especially improv comedy. Um, and I just think that, yeah, sometimes coming at it from the comedy lens can be more fun, literally more fun. And one of the big elements of surprise that I think we can look for, and the story I've wanted to tell Erica for a couple of days, but I've been wanting to save it till when we're recording live, is that it, you've probably all seen those masks of comedy and tragedy 
right? The, those Commedia dell'arte masks where we see, you know, the really frowning mask, sad mask, and then this like joyful, happy mask. And that's often how drama is represented. And I think comedy and drama are so linked because, which is also a really helpful thing to take into our own internal way of looking at our mental health, is that at our, we've all experienced the feeling of, I'm on this day that's supposed to be really joyful, and yet I feel melancholy. Like everyone I have ever met has had that experience and been like, why am I not happier? Like the sun is literally shining for everyone, but I'm sad. I'm tough town inside. So that can happen. And then also you can be in the toughest town, hardest moments with like literally poop all over you and start laughing. We've all been in, and that's the shock leaving the body, right? And so I, I think a lot of times people think that somebody experiencing maybe a perinatal mood disorder or going through a really tough time in their life isn't able to laugh or isn't willing to laugh or that that would in somehow, you know, people that are grieving, for example, that they're not allowed to laugh or we can't just like have a nice time with them. And quite often those are the people that are laughing the hardest or that are looking for that laugh or that need it more than anybody else. And in our, we'll shock ourselves sometimes in those moments where we're able to see it's like that dark comedy. I mean, I'm from Northern England. I feel like we're really, really good at dark comedy because I'm from kind of the Mississippi of England and like times are a little tougher there and more industrial and like not shiny. And so people have historically over time, like they've developed that relationship with available joy and with also like really seeing the humor in the like darkest, hardest situations. And so I had this conversation a few days ago with somebody who, I mean, talk about unicorn, like so many, incredible things popping back and forth and hearing sometimes you meet somebody and you're like oh yeah like people are living these deep incredible nuanced journeys and this was one of those people who really hammered home to me uh how potent and powerful the human experience is and this was before she and then she told me this story and i was like and and i'm obsessed with you <laughs> so we started talking a little bit about mental health and i brought forward that that's probably of all of the areas of focus that i'm the most passionate about or the most forward in speaking with passion about is mental health and she said oh me too and then told me some of her journey as a person that um holds a particular diagnosis that for a lot of people would be um, really paralyzing or would have been, or they would have experienced it as an end to certain aspects of their life on the mental health spectrum. And she shared so openly with so much heart and so much humor about her various stints in um, mental health facilities. And she laughed with tears in her eyes. We laughed together, holding each other's hands with tears in our eyes when she told me about her, one of her biggest healing journeys and her longest periods in a mental health facility where she was on a different set of medication than everybody else in the facility. And the medication that she was on allowed her to maintain really present motor skills. So everybody else was on a medication that um, delayed their reaction time. So whenever they would do like group activities like volleyball, she would be the only person that could hit the ball in the time that the ball was actually coming to them. And so everybody else would be like, 
following like where the ball was going and reaching out really slowly with their arms and she would be like basically playing volleyball alone and then like laughing. how did the people running this activity not think volleyball's not a great idea right now I don't that is know. so wild she acted it out so well like she like with the arms extending and she just like had to laugh right because it was like I mean she's in a mental health facility for months and months and there's just so the road to healing is just so like the light at the end of the tunnel is just so far away and then these moments of comedy would come and just give her this newfound sense of hope and of joy and just her ability to eat even see that in that moment as objectively funny not just subjectively funny but objectively funny and they totally and she's the only one that walked away with volleyball trophies yeah outside of her mental health ward that's like a huge accomplishment And she, so, they, so and she good. All these stories like when they would build uh, gingerbread houses together, she was the only one that was allowed to touch the hot sugar because I'd like piece together the gingerbread house because she could like keep a steady hand. And then everyone else would like get some gummy bears or whatever to put on. But it was- this is a really good example of finding the game. It finds the game. Sometimes the game is just volleyball. <laughs> And sometimes it's building a gingerbread house. That to me was, and I think that would be most people, you know, that is most people's nightmare is being in a state of being where you need that level of support and really scary to think about. And yet that person in that moment was able to swipe out and, and laugh and needed that laugh so badly. And that laugh to them was an indicator of their own uh, sense of self returning. And so there's, there's just those, it's just so important because it can be the ability to laugh is tied to the ability to reflect. And I think the ability to reflect is tied to an ability to tie it back into the beginning of this conversation. Okay. My, my future self is going to look back on this moment and glorify it in retrospect. So the present self has an obligation to future self to embody the available joy, to actually receive the available joy. Now that's a really complicated way of saying there's hope, right? And there's a journey. And there's this moment that I'll definitely, definitely handle and survive. And then there'll be another moment and I'm building, I'm yes anding my own life. And this is like the, you know, we, we are laughing and we are talking about some really funny, sweet things, but for some people, this literally is life and death, right? This is their ability to be with their own journey over time. And what we're saying is that you are worthy of your own joy and that by working on seeing the game, seeing the joke, being surprised, showing up in that way, you are reminding yourself mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, that there are times ahead, that there's a journey here that's, that's worth showing up for and that's worth continuing to be with. So I really have a lot of gratitude for her sharing that with me. Um, and I know that there are people that are listening to this who've been in a facility like that or who have, um, or who are, that is their biggest nightmare. And so, um, for somebody to share something so deep, I just have a lot of gratitude. Yeah, I got hope. It's a good thing to have. And I feel like that's a good example of what each of these tenants can bring you besides like laughter and the available joy. Hope is 
what we need as a major tether to pull ourselves out of the scenarios that keep us sinking. Okay, so the last one, and we put this at the end on purpose, is permission to fail. And I think that this plays into all of them. It plays into everything that we've been talking about, which is giving yourself the permission to not get it right, to not get it perfect, and to just totally fall on your face, which is also clown. Um, and I want to give an example of when failure in a supported environment um, winds up being funny. And we teach this class called Improv for Birth Workers, and I frequently share this story in there because it's one of the first times in when I was studying comedy um, that I really understood this. So, um, and it, what I want to say before I tell the story too is that what makes this work is rings of support. Okay, so you can't do what I'm about to say alone, which is probably like the greater golden thread going through every episode of Tether Together, is that most of the time we're talking about ways um, for life to be worth living, but you got to tether together because you can't do these things alone. So, okay, I was watching this improv show. I was an audience member. This is in the early 2000s, y'all, in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, at this little theater that used to be there called the Charlie Pineapple. And at this point, I had moved to Brooklyn, but I'd been studying comedy in Chicago for a while and was still kind of teetering around on the idea of making this like my full-time life choice. And so I was not only studying more comedy, but I was seeing comedy really, really regularly. And I was watching this improv comedy show where it was done by a team and two people had set up a very clear um, scene where they were in a kitchen and they were sitting at a dining room table in a kitchen and they had already like the person who had kind of established themselves as a parent in the scenario had already like opened the refrigerator but again there is no table and there is no refrigerator because it's just improv comedy so there's like only two blocks that they were sitting on but so they had established through kind of like mime work that there was like a refrigerator right here and a sink here and they were kind of doing these busy busying things with their bodies to establish the scene around them while they were talking about a not so interesting scene and like no comedy had really come out yet. And then another person from the side came into the scene, but that person had not been listening very well or watching the scene that clear and came in through the refrigerator. What had already been established through mine, mime as the refrigerator. And so that person walked in what they thought was a door as the refrigerator and came into the scene with like the funny nugget they wanted to add to the scene. But as the audience, we all watched the mistake. And there was like this moment of tension, which there's so much like tension and release in comedy and in life. There was a moment of tension of like what was going to happen here is if someone was going to acknowledge it or not. And it was acknowledged. And then the whole scene, so the way it got acknowledged is that another person on the sidelines came out of the dishwasher. And then the next person jumped out of the trash can. And then the whole scene became less about what anybody in the scene had been talking about. And now just about these entrances and exits that were inside of appliances and every single thing in the kitchen was like a portal 
And that was the whole joke. That was the game. And then everyone started phys doing physical stuff. So there was clown and just like, it was truly hilarious. It's hilarious enough that I am talking about it like so many years later, still using it as an example where failure can become gold if you are supported. And that when you're in a world with people that are ready to lift you up and ready to help you in any moment, that actually your failure can sometimes be the moment, the things that feel the schloggiest, biggest mistakes, the hardest thing that has ever happened, sometimes later that turns into truly like the golden nugget. And so I want you each to know that you can just bust into a scene and say what you need through the refrigerator. <laughs> And that, that is like, okay, because if you've got your supportive community around you holding you, they will in some way like make that funny, if that makes sense. So good. Also, it's like if we looked at our early days of parenthood and expected them to feel like a level one improv class rather than <laughs> our seminal work. And I think that that's, uh, you know, a place, part, all of level one, when you do an eight week level one class at UCB or Improv Olympic or Second City or any of these places, the, the teacher is there to hold space for the failures and for you learning how to stop no budding and start yes anding, right? And, and the clown, will, clown emerges out of, uh, the failures and the figuring out and the bumbling through. And I think it is helpful to think of the first trimester, the first year of parenthood as like your level one improv class, you know, and there are going to be some funny moments, but a lot of it's just like figuring out what this even is and getting even just past the nerves, right? Getting beyond the nerves of like saying something or trying something or stepping into a scene willingly, you know, um, not expecting that to be, to be rewarded with the, with the comedy award. But the takeaways from here, and I think it's just like the encapsulatory moment is that you are deserving of your own available joy. And what we're hoping you get out of this is the ability to find it and to know how to look for it and even sometimes be able to create it and fashion it yourself. And in the meantime, we really truly hope that what is going on is that you tether together with the people in your community and with us and others that allow you the permissions to fail, also the permissions to just like keep your joy for you when you need it and um, the space to feel supported while you look for this piece. Obviously, as you can tell, we could and probably will talk about this forever. And we hope for you today that wherever you are and whatever you're up to, you are able to find and lean into and receive the available joy that is present for you in your moments. And in the meantime, let's keep tethering together. Thanks for listening. Bye. Don't forget to share with your friends.